and uh, be prepared. You can turn in your Bibles tonight to Nehemiah chapter 7. And if you're studying ahead in the book of Nehemiah, you had a challenge when you came to Nehemiah chapter 7 and you begin reading through that. And if you have not read through it yet, you'll see what I'm talking about here in a minute when we take a look at Nehemiah chapter 7. Uh, as you notice in the Bible, there are 73 verses that make up uh, Nehemiah chapter 7. And if you'll glance at it very quickly, you'll notice the majority of those verses are taken up with uh, names that are somewhat difficult for us to pronounce. You notice that? Uh, if, you need, if you need some baby ideas, there's some great ones here. Uh, we can, there's a lot to choose from. I mean, you just, you know, I would just close my eyes and just point. Let's see what happens. And hey, Aiden, that's not too bad. A D I M. So that was a good one. So, yeah, big, big fire, sure. But in all honesty, when we were reading through the Bible, maybe you do a, a read through the Bible in a year. When you come to a passage like this, what do you do with it? You have to answer out loud. But a lot of times, that's one of those ones that you might just glance at real quickly and move on. In fact, it's interesting, as I've been studying uh, today for this evening's uh, study together, uh, some authors just skip over it. I mean, commentators, pastors that wrote a book on the book of Nehemiah, they just skip over it. We know that the Bible says that all scriptures given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, proof, instruction, righteousness, and correction. And uh, we know that all scriptures God breathed. And sometimes we come to these passages and we say, what does this mean to us? Well, I hope tonight we can draw some principles out of this passage that will help us. To get started, I want to read an article to you. It's on your page there at the very beginning, those opening paragraphs. Uh, this is from Jerry White. Uh, he wrote a little book I picked up uh, earlier this week uh, called, let me check my notes here, uh, Rules to Live By, 52 Principles for a Better Life. And he wrote in this little piece, if you'll follow along as I read it, in our hostile workaday world, the people we meet desire and deserve three things for us. Number one, honor for who they are, not for what they do. Number two, respect, regardless of their gifting, position or status. Number three, love, which is the unconditional acceptance of their personhood. He writes, we can impart these three things to others through our attitudes, words, body language actions, and expenditure of time. Everyone desires and equally deserves our honor, respect, and love because each human being is fashioned in the image of God. That's why we affirm the dignity and value of every person. There will always be those who are smarter, more gifted, wealthier, or more powerful, as well as those who are less endowed in all those ways. But there are no lesser persons. Neurosurgeons, janitors, fast food cooks, pilots, homemakers, theologians, migrant workers, actors, widows, presidents, all are human, all have feelings and needs. I put a couple questions there for you to consider tonight. Number one, do you agree with Jerry White's comments? Why or why not? Do you agree? With his comments, as we read through that tonight, as you process that, what's your reaction? Do you agree with what he said? Some are nodding in the affirmative. Anybody want to elaborate beyond the nod? Why do you agree? If, if it's true, if you agree with him, everybody deserves honor, respect and love. 
and all persons are humans and they're fashioned in the image of God and they deserve this. Why is that so? Why do you agree with that? All right, the Bible teaches us that. Love and one another. Yeah. Care for one another. Exactly. Treat each other equally. Okay. Not according to whether they're a beggar, a drunkard on the side street, they still deserve to smile. Okay, good. Good. I believe we all have a desire to be validated, to mm-hmm. have, have a sense that our life does matter. Okay. We live in a society that's cheapened human life, right? I mean, we don't value those who are elderly and those who are unable to care for themselves. We don't value the unborn anymore. Uh, I'm talking about as a nation. Uh, We have cheapened life. Um, We look at abortion. We wonder how much longer before euthanasia becomes acceptable. I mean, what purpose are these people fulfilling? Uh, Except filling up space. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking as they would speak. But we know that's not true. Because God has given us life, and God is the giver and the taker of life. Um, we even saw that in the book of Jonah. I didn't point it out Sunday, I don't guess, but you know, Jonah wanted to die. But you notice Jonah never took his own life. Elijah got to a point in his life where he wanted to die, but he didn't take his own life. I remember sitting across my desk one time from a young, with a young man that wanted to take his life. And I pretty much point blank told him, you don't have the right to take your life. That is something God has given. That's something God is the one that decides uh, when we live and when we die. We can do things to shorten our life, certainly. And we could go out and take our life, but that is something that should be left to the Lord to do. Uh, we could shorten our lives in other ways, too. Uh, but uh, God is the one that gives. And no matter how much we work, no matter how we try to prolong our lives, when God is ready for us to go, we will go. We can be pretty as we want to be at that time be 185 but if god says it's time to go we're going and uh, there's no way around it well look at the next question i put there why do some people view other people differently why do some people view other people differently all right because they're not like us all right all right Good. All right, some people are taught that way. Also, if you, um, I've noticed just in um, paying attention to some people, um, you may not have, some people um, may not have a lot of money or not a higher education, and they see other people and they think that people are looking down on them when in actuality they're not, mm-hmm. but they perceive that people are. Yeah. We experienced that, Danielle and I experienced that last week. We went out of town to check on something and we walked in this one place and we had the feeling that we were looked down upon because we were a highfalutin place and we weren't highfalutin. (laughs) And uh, we got that feeling from the receptionist that, uh, you know, uh, you know, here come the hillbillies uh, in here. And I think it was the very same week and maybe the next day we went somewhere and it was the total opposite. That was somewhere in town where we were, it was the opposite, like we were looked upon like we were high, but we'd done nothing but walk in. But the people viewed us as, well, you know, you know. Uh, and so I find that very interesting. Uh, done nothing different, didn't conduct myself any different in either situation. We many times will stereotype people. Uh, we 
perceive. We may meet one person. Some people will meet one person in a certain way, and then they classify every person that looks like that. Um, we live in a society that's different. We can go and find people that have all kinds of stuff shoved all in their ears and eyes and nose and rods and metal and all chains and all kinds of stuff. But did Jesus die for those people? Yes. yes. Does Jesus love those people? Yes. Should we try to reach those people with the gospel? Yes. Can, can God save those people? Yes. And then others will look upon us and think we're strange. Um, but we know that God has created all of us. Don't answer out loud on this last one. It's just something for you to consider in your own life. Do you practice showing honor, respect, and love to every person you interact with? Don't answer out loud. Just think in your own heart. Do you practice that? This kind of goes to something that um, I watched on uh, Channel 9, What Would You Do? I don't know if y'all seen the program or not, but where they had these actors were playing uh, Mexican immigrants, and Mm -hmm. they walked into a restaurant, and the guy who was behind the counter, that one was the owner of the place, and he knew what the other actor was doing. And they set up, you know, where the person who was working there would not serve the two immigrants because they didn't speak English. Mm-hmm. And um, all these other people were watching them. And some of the customers kept saying, yeah, we agree with you. We know where you're coming from. Yeah, they all need to go back to where they're coming from. And then you had these other ones who were, like, very mad because they're still people, too. Yeah. And as I was watching that, it made me think about myself and what I say when I see Mexicans yeah. or anybody, you know. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes we're taught those things growing up, maybe not sat down and said, now this is what, but we understand that from mm-hmm. those who've talk, taught us and brought us up. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I talked with someone very unique yesterday at Feed My Lambs. Uh, first she asked me if I was a Christian, and I, and I don't know why she told me this, but she has a disease or, or something where her body doesn't digest food correctly, mm-hmm. and she has a body odor. Okay. And she has took our baths three times a day mm-hmm. where she actually has sores on her and bleeds. Mm. And she has even used Clorox to, to gargle with. Wow. She has such in school. It just broke my heart. Yeah. They called her scum juice. Mm. She said she would stay in the bathroom. And she, she's probably in her mid-40s now. But she said, I just don't feel like I belong to this woman. And I tried to tell her that God has a purpose for her. Yes. Yes. But I just wanted, she said she went went in the doctor's office recently. And uh, until it got crowded and somebody was sitting next to her. And he started sneezing and coughing and he got up and moved. And so another lady come and sit back. Buyer, and she had these papers so she could let people know that she was clean. She couldn't help the odor. And the lady out like she didn't know what to do with it. She said, I don't know what to do with this, you know. Mm. But she wants to be accepted. Yeah. And, you know, if somebody has an odor, I would have never thought that it was a medical condition. They, uh, I just saw something on TV about that about a couple weeks ago. And there she is a medication. Yeah. There's medication they can take for that, I think, if I remember watching that. She didn't know about the medication, but she is. She's got her baths down before she just takes one down. I said, you really mean I think the doctor is, is helping her with it. But I said, you know, water's not all you can do in 10 minutes. It's not going to do anymore. Yeah. She has the mindset now that 
she's trying to get it, it Yeah. There are a lot of hurting people. Mm-hmm. And we need to show the love of Jesus to every person. Whether we they're our type of people or not, whether they're the type of people we would even be drawn to, we need to step out of our comfort zone. And what we're going to learn tonight in this passage where we find Nehemiah counting the people, we're going to learn this lesson, I hope, and that is that people count. People count. We're going to find they're counting the people, but we want to understand and get the people count. The ministry that God has given us here, and you've got some um, places there in your worksheet. We'll begin going through uh, some things you can fill in there. The ministry that God has given us here is not about programs. It's not about programs. And we have wonderful programs, but we use programs. We don't use people to build programs. We use programs to build people. I want you to get that. We don't use people to build programs. We use programs to build people. We're not careful. We can begin a program here and we want this program to be successful. And so we do everything we can to stuff people in this program. But that's not the idea behind programs. Programs are here to help us build people. And when programs don't work anymore or not helping us to do that, it may be time to move on to a different program. We recently did that with our Wednesday night children's programs. Uh, we've been having the same programs apparently for years here. They were wonderful programs. We found they were not serving the purposes we needed them to serve in 2010. So we took a hard look at it. We, we talked about it. We decided it's time to make a change in the program. And so we went to Team Kid. We recently changed just, a, what, a year or two ago? We, we, we changed our youth program somewhat, and we went to his teens, and we, we tweaked it. And the thing about it is we want to use our programs to build people. It's about the children. It's about the people, not the programs. And I want you to get that down. We've always got to keep that in mind. Ministry is about people. Uh, In all honesty, rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem that Nehemiah has been involved in, it wasn't so much about the wall. It wasn't just Thanksgiving and said, what a beautiful wall. That's an awesome wall. Isn't that a neat wall? The reason they rebuilt the wall was for the people inside the wall. The wall was the defense for the people. The wall was for the glory of God and for the people. Why? Because people count. And we find that here. Now, in chapter 7 of Nehemiah, we kind of turn a corner. I don't know if you remember our outline or not. I've got it, a couple of blanks. There's something I remember. A very simple outline here. Something the walls, chapters 1 through 6, and then something the people, chapters 7 through 13. Anybody remember the outline? All right, we said repairing, but rebuilding the walls is good. Repairing the walls. And then the second we start tonight is this. Search with an R2. Reviving the people. Reviving the people. Repairing the walls, we studied in chapters 1 through 6. Reviving the people, chapters 7 through 13. Now, Nehemiah as a leader seems doing several things here tonight. Let's begin reading there in Nehemiah chapter 7. And we'll begin reading there in verse number one. Then it was when the wall was built and I had hung the doors, when the gatekeepers, the singers, the Levites had been appointed, that I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the leader of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. And I said to him, do not let the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot. And while they stand guard, let them shut, the bar, shut and bar the doors and appoint guards uh, from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one in his watch station and another in front of his own house. 
Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not rebuilt. Now several things that Nehemiah did as a leader here. First of all, we find administration. In chapter 7, verse 1, the wall is completed. The doors are hung. It's a marvelous accomplishment. It was a great hurl that overcome. But Nehemiah's work is not done. Now remember, it's not about the walls. It's about the people inside the walls. It's about the Lord and his honor and his glory. And Nehemiah, as governor, had to administrate. He had to continue providing leadership. He's been doing that all through the book of Nehemiah under great duress, under great opposition, under great struggles and and strains and long days and hard work and hard labor. He's been leading and providing leadership. Now, out of that administration comes (coughs) delegation, delegation. I want you to notice he appointed some people to assist him here in verses one and two. Now, really, we have three groups And then two particular officers. Did you notice that in verses 1 and 2? He appointed, if you notice in chapter 7, verse 1, the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites. So three groups of people there. And then two particular officers or offices in in verse number 2. He gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hanani. We don't know if that was his blood brother or just a brother in, in, in that sense. Or uh, if it was just a, a way they were saying that. And then Hananiah, the leader of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. And so we find there uh, that Jerusalem, uh, Nehemiah was prepared to use these two chief operating officers. Hanani was the civic leader. He was kind of the equivalent of the mayor. And Hananiah would have been uh, the equivalent to us of the chief of police. Okay, so we have this structure being laid out. We have these helpers in Nehemiah's life. And Nehemiah, as all leaders must recognize, could not do all of this on his own. He needed help. He needed assistance. And by the way, all of us, whether we'll admit it or not, we need help and we need assistance. Now, will you notice the qualifications that Nehemiah was concerned about? It says in the end of verse 2 about uh, Hananiah, the leader of the citadel, he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. Godliness was very important to Nehemiah. Godliness was very important to the Lord. And what about this um, Hanani? If you look back at chapter 1, we learned about him. We believe it's the same one, verses 2 and 3 of Nehemiah. We're back there where Nehemiah is uh, the king's cupbearer at this point. And it says in verse number two, uh, Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. We believe it's the same man that gave the initial report to Nehemiah, possibly his brother. We're not, we're not certain if it was his blood brother. But here that's the man that is one of his chief operating officers. Now, as a good administrator, Nehemiah didn't just say, OK, guys, here's the job. Go do it. No, Nehemiah gave instructions. And I want you to notice the instructions in verse number three. It says in verse number three, I said to them back in chapter seven now, do not let the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot. 
And while they stand guard, let them shut and bar the doors and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch station and another in front of his own house. Now, if you've been with us at any time in this study, why do you think that Nehemiah took these measures? To make sure they waited till later on in the morning, till the sun is, is up and the sun is hot and bright to open those gates and also this extra protection standing guard and bolting those gates. Why do you think that was the case? Yeah, safety. They had been threatened time and time again. Remember, we studied the last three chapters were all about opposition, weren't they? And they wanted to do harm. They did not want these people to do well. And so now he realizes that it's important to guard the city and guard those inside the city. Now, delegation is very important. We cannot do everything. We've talked about in this study that pretty much everybody's a leader in some way, shape or form. You're leading something or somebody. And we understand in life we have to learn to delegate. We have to learn to have people help us. It's interesting, I gave you some scripture there. Let's begin looking at that. I'll give you a little uh, breakdown of some folks that had to learn uh, these lessons. Uh, let's go back to Exodus chapter 18. And we're going to learn this, that Moses had to learn the lesson that he needed to delegate. Exodus chapter 18. Exodus 18. We'll begin reading at verse 13. Moses had to learn this lesson. Exodus chapter 18, begin reading at verse 13. And so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, What is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a difficulty, they come to me and I judge between one and another and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. Now, keep, keep your finger there. You see what's going on here? The people are coming to Moses and he's making a judgment between right and wrong between these people. And it's taking from morning till night. It's taking all day. And the people are standing out there. And Moses there, case after case after case after case after case. And Moses' father-in-law comes on the scene and watches what's going on. Notice in verse 17. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing that you do is not good. Now, how many sons-in-law at that point would have said, Dad, you're right. No, a lot of times, sons-in-law would say, what do you know, old man, right? But Moses is a wise man. Moses is a godly man. He's a humble man, a meek man. Verse 18. But you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out. For this thing is too much for you. You're not able to perform it by yourself. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God. And I watch in verse 20. And you shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and the work that they must do. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden 
with you. If you do this thing and God so commands you, then you'll be able to endure and all this people will also go to their place in peace. So what does he do? That's a great plan, isn't it? He says, listen, you teach the people, you raise up and teach some godly men and, and who can be judges over these different groups of people. Let them handle the simple matters. They bring the difficult matters to you. Look at verse, verse, verse 24. So Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, rulers of the tens. So they judged the people at all times, the hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart and he went his way to his own land. Moses had to learn the lesson that he had to delegate. He could not do everything himself. Now, we move from an Old Testament account to a New Testament account. Go to Acts chapter 6, and we learn the apostles had to learn this lesson that we must delegate. That's what Nehemiah is doing. He's delegating. He's giving others responsibility. This is a familiar passage. We read it Sunday at the deacon ordination. We believe we have here the calling of the first deacons. And in all honesty, when you think about this passage, it's all about delegation. It's all about service. Let's look at it together. Acts chapter 6, beginning at verse number 1. Now, in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, so the church is growing, there arose a complaint. Uh Oh, imagine that a complaint in the church. There arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. And let's stop for a moment. Don't misunderstand the apostles. Don't misunderstand the twelve. They're not saying they're above serving tables. They're not saying they're above doing these things, but it's not their calling. God has called them to minister in a different way. Verse number three. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves, here's their calling, continually to what? To prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, and Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them like we did Sunday. There's our principle and our example for that. Then notice what happens. The work is delegated. People are carrying forth the word. Look at verse 7. Then the word of God spread. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now, I have to wonder when I read that, what would have happened if the apostles said, okay, we've got to stop praying and stop ministering the word. We've got to take care of all these tables and all these disputes. What would have happened? We don't know, but I don't know if we'll be reading that in verse number 7 or not. So we understand the apostles had to learn the importance of delegation. And here's very interesting. I thought about this, I think. I haven't really thought about this regard today. Do you realize this? Jesus has delegated to us. Jesus, bless you. Jesus has delegated to us. Stay in that same book and back up to chapter 1. Acts 1. Acts chapter 1. Verse number 8. This is an awesome thought. It's a humbling thought. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This is the Lord Jesus speaking. He says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Back up to Matthew 28. Another familiar passage to many. Matthew 28. 
And we'll begin reading at verse 16. It says in Matthew 28, verse 16, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus delegated the spreading of the gospel to us? Think about that. Now, he could have had the angels come and the clouds and preach the gospel. He could have descended from heaven and, and could have preached the gospel to the whole world. But he's, he, as he's going back, he says, I, I give this job to you. You ever read about the disciples? Have you ever read about the apostles? Have you ever read about Peter and his mouth and... Uh, the sons of thunder, James and John, and these people. These are the people that Jesus says, I'm, I'm delegating to you. I'm going back. I'm leaving you the gospel. Take it to the ends of the earth. And he says to us, hey, look in the mirror. Look at us. Jesus says to us, I want you to take the gospel. He's delegated to us. That's an awesome thought. It's a humbling thought. It's an awesome responsibility. It's also a glorious responsibility. He's entrusted that work to us. Praise be to his name. I want to give you some practical helps on delegation. Now, you have to tweak these for wherever you live and whatever your responsibilities are. And you can do this. This is not from a Bible book. This is from a business book. But I thought some very good practical things. You'll, like, you'll find it there in your worksheet. What is it, page two? Some practical helps on delegation. Uh, this is from, check my footnotes here. Uh, Kenneth Zeigler, Getting Organized at Work. You ready to get organized at work? You ready to get organized at home? Ready to get organized at all? What are some of the benefits of delegation? Here's some practical things. I'm just going to give you real quickly. Uh, number one, it will save an amazing amount of time. It will save an amazing amount of time. I think it was D.L. Moody who said, better uh, to teach ten men to do the work than do the work of ten men. Uh, how long did it take Moses to sit out there and judge every single case all day? But when he taught the people and he appointed others, it saved a lot of time. And he was able to actually live and hopefully be able to have a life, if you will. It is one of the highest forms of motivation known because it encourages participation. Think about that for a moment. When a leader delegates to others, it shows those, those other people what? I trust you. I'm depending on you. You're a part of this team. I noticed thoroughly, it develops your staff into a more productive group. It develops your staff into a more productive group. Notice next, it encourages trust and cooperation on your team. Why? Because we're laboring together. We're involved together. It's just communicating trust. Next, it increases the level of teamwork for your direct reports. I'm taking this verbatim from the business book. You tweak it for your situation. It increases the level of teamwork for your direct reports. Everybody's not going their own way. We're on the same page. And then notice next, it improves your skills. How does it improve your skills? Well, it improves your skills at training, at coaching, at mentoring. And by the way, that's biblical. The Bible says what? The older women should train the younger women. Right? That's biblical. We need the older generation to raise up and mentor and help those who are younger. 
I want everybody at Red Hill in whatever position you're doing to take somebody under your wing and train them how to do it. Literally. Because one day when the Lord takes you home to heaven, somebody's got to step in there and do it. It's my desire to see young men come through and be called to the ministry and be mentored and be growing here. And so we need to be training and coaching and mentoring and helping others. Now, here's some good tips on how to delegate. And by the way, for some people, this is easier than for other people. This is something that I've had to struggle with in my life. You know why? Because I've been a perfectionist a great majority of my life. Perfectionists sometimes have a hard time delegating. Why? Because I can do it better. Or at least I think I can do it better. But if you delegate, you've got to do what? You've got to let go. And trust they're going to do it. But a lot of us have trouble asking others to do something because we're compassionate people. We just don't want to trouble them when we think, well, I'll just do it myself. Yeah. I'll save them the time and I'll just take the pump myself. Yeah. Sometimes that is the case. We, we, we feel so badly helping, getting him else to help us that we just bear it all ourselves. Yeah. Sometimes it's a fear of being inadequate. You feel like if you give it to somebody else, other people may interpret that as you don't know how to do it. Okay, that. yeah. It could be a pride issue then if we're all honest. Well, good, I'm the only one that has a harder time delegating. This is awesome. Well, let's help each other, okay? Let's look at what it says. Number one, choose the right person for the job. Yeah, that takes some time to realize what are their skills, what are their capabilities, what's their potential. There are some people that you were to delegate something, you might, you're just asking for headaches and heartaches and frustration and everything else. But you look at your people and say, who can handle this job? Choose the right person. If you're in ministry, you'd be what? You'd be praying, asking God, who is it? And it's amazing. Sometimes I'll throw out a need here. It's amazing. People will just jump all over that need. Other times I'll throw out a need and it's like crickets just chirping and <laughs> nobody wants to do that. You know, we have different giftings and callings in ministry. The Lord has spiritually gifted us for different things. OK, choose the right person. Number two, here's an important one. Define the task. Define the task, your desired results and your expectations. Now, we're looking at this from you being the. The one who's the supervisor, the one in authority, delegating to someone else. And that's in, across the realm. Define the task. What is it that you're asking that person to do? Define your desired results. What are you looking at as an end result? And what are your expectations? You know, I think this is something we're trying to work on here at Red Hill. Uh, we're, we're wanting to revamp and redo our, our nomination and committee manual and our officer's manual because we call people and we get them on committees and we get them in positions and we say, will you serve in this? And they say, yes, I'll serve in that. And they have no idea what we expect of them. They have no idea what we're asking them to do. Now, Sunday school teachers know they have to show up and teach. Uh, people that count the offering pretty much got that down. But some, some committees and some things we ask people to do, they have no idea what they're supposed to do. They have no idea who they answer to, what they can do, what authority they have. We've, we're working on that. We're revamping that and hope to in the future. It, we're supposed to do it last year, but the year just we went like this and it was gone. It was the new year. And uh, but we need to define the task. What is it we're asking you to do? Uh, set a start time and a deadline. That's an important thing in delegation. Uh, give them adequate time and don't expect a miracle. But say, hey, get started on this, and here, let's shoot for this. Does that mean it has to be done? You can never make adjustments? No. But you set a definite start time and deadline. Make sure, here's an important, make sure the designee has the proper training. The proper training. 
Exactly. Exactly. You know, one of the things that God has called me to do as a pastor is to equip the body to do the work of the ministry. That's what the Bible says. I'm to help equip the body to do the work of the ministry. I'm going to be honest with you, beloved. That's a lot of work. It's a whole lot easier, and I think this goes back to some of what y'all were saying. It's a lot easier to do it yourself than take the time to teach someone else to do it, right? I mean, I could do that a lot faster. Uh, I'll just do it. But we're not equipping others. We're not helping others. Uh, what's the old saying? Um, I forget the old saying. I guess it's too old. Thank uh, <laughs> you. It's the fishing one. Uh, yeah, uh, give, a, give a man a fish, he eats for a day. Teach a man a fish, he eats for the rest of his life. That, that's pretty much close. That's a good fishing. I'm thinking about uh, Miss Ruby, Mr. Wheeler. You're going to go fishing pretty soon. Um, yeah. It takes time to equip others. Make sure they have the proper training. The proper training. Next, give the necessary authority. Give the necessary authority. There's nothing more frustrating than having something delegated to you that you can do nothing with. In other words, they ask you to do a job, but they won't give you the authority to do the job. You know? Give the necessary authority. Uh, Here's another important. Give praise and feedback at the end. Notice the order of that. Give praise and feedback. Listen, if you've got to go over something negative to someone... Buffer it with something positive, true, but positive first. Hey, listen, you did a great job here, 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 here. And here's an area we need to work on. You know, don't just go, well, man, you really botched this up. This is pathetic. Right? Get praise and feedback, you know. And finally, track the task. Track the task. This is something practical. Uh, maybe checks and balances. I may check in with you. Let me know uh, how you're doing. Give me a call next week. Let me know where you're on that project. You tweak that for where you are, okay, and what your situation is. I mean, delegation can even be in the realm of you hiring somebody to work at your house. Right? You're delegating that work to that person. They come in. What do you want done? I want you to build a deck. Uh, I don't want it to be more than this amount of money. I don't want it to take longer than this. Uh, I don't want to be out of this room for this much time. You're delegating even through that, aren't you? You're in charge and you're delegating and you're tracking along. Does that make sense? Does that help? That was just some practical things. Nehemiah, he's delegating. He's, he's giving uh, some of the labor away and, and seeking to uh, build up others. Administration, delegation. And then thirdly tonight, registration. Registration. I want you to notice what it says in verse number four. Now, the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not rebuilt. Now, notice verse 5. Then my God put into my heart together the nobles, the rulers, the people, that they might be registered by genealogy. And I found a register of the genealogy of those who had come up in the first return and found written in it. Now, can I have a volunteer to read verses 6 through 73? <laughs> I hear those crickets and chirping. Now, just take a moment and look through all those. Just look at them real quickly. It's a lot of people. If you come down... At the end there, it also talks about gifts that were given, financial gifts. Um, Verse number 70 and on down. 
Now, what do we do with these? I want you to look at those quotes I gave on your page. What page are we on y'all's worksheet? Three? Let's read these paragraphs together. Nehemiah discovered a list recorded by families of the names of the Jewish people who had come from Persia to Judah in 536 B.C. Remember, remember when that happened? Saw that on the news? That's a long time before our time. Then. They came under Zerubbabel. This long list that you're looking at part of here consisted of the names of leaders, verse 7, people by families, verses 8 to 25, people by cities, verses 26 to 38, priests, verses 39 through 42, Levites, verses 43 through 45, Nethinim and temple servants, verses 46 through 56, Solomon's servants, verses 57 through 60, Returnees without a genealogy, verses 61 through 65. The total number of the people, verses 66 to 67. Their animals, verses 68 69. And the gifts given for support of the work, verses 70 through 72. This same list is found in Ezra 2 with some minor variations. Now, here's what's interesting. This is recorded twice in God's word. Ezra 2 is slightly different from this one. Now, turn you on the same page. Read the next couple paragraphs with me. This is not a list, watch this, this is not a list of people who accompanied Nehemiah to Jerusalem in 444 B.C., but a record of those who returned with Sheshbazar, that's a good baby name, by the way, Zerubbabel and Jeshua in 537 B.C. It is almost identical to the list in Ezra 2. Now, why? Let's read the next paragraph. Why did Nehemiah repeat this list? Apparently... He wanted to encourage the Jews to move into Jerusalem. Notice the reference, chapter 11. Let's read that, verses 1 and 2. Because in chapter 11, you have several more names there. Chapter 11, verses uh, 1 and 2. Nehemiah chapter 11, uh, verses 1 and 2. Now the leaders of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to dwell in Jerusalem. The holy city and nine tents were to dwell in other cities and the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. So this is one of the goals of the return to determine who were pure blooded Israelites. Uh, he did some research and uncovered this list. Uh, he then used it as the basis for his plan. We read about there in chapter 11. Notice this next part I put in bold uh, from this quote. The repetition of this list also confirms God's faithfulness in preserving his chosen people and God's loyal love in bringing them back into the land that he promised to give their ancestors. It is a second witness to his faithfulness and love, the first being the first witness. So think about this, uh, this list of names, these people, uh, both here in Nehemiah chapter 7 and also in Ezra chapter 2. Let me ask you a question. Have you met any Jebusites or Perizzites lately? <laughs> yeah, but you, you know there are Jewish people all across the globe. And, and here's the great thing about it, beloved. While no one else may have remembered these people, uh, God did. Hebrews 6.10 is very encouraging. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Listen, saint of God, what you do for God matters. Whether it looks big or small in man's eyes, that doesn't matter. What matters is that you're doing it for the Lord. Just think about everything that had to take place for us to have what we're having here on this Wednesday night at Red Hill. I mean, think about 
everyone who was involved, from preparing the menu to buying the food to cooking the food to turning on the air conditioning uh, to ordering materials for the children's program to running copies, on and on and on. Listen, people forget. People fail to say thank you. People overlook you, but God never will. Notice that long quote I put there from Stephen Davey. He said, so let's roll the credits and read of noble ones who change diapers and sweep the floors, answer telephones and pull weeds, arrange meetings and teach Bible lessons, prepare children's games and turn dials on the soundboard, clean the bathrooms and count the offering, practice music and type the letters, pray through the list and visit guests, cook meals and offer rides, dust furniture and greet the family, translate sermons and duplicate tapes, park cars and prepare coffee, disciple teenagers and lead children to Christ, design brochures and stuff envelopes, crawl on the floor of toddlers and set up chairs in classrooms, wash the nursery linens and clean dishes after a church activity, recruit volunteers or thank the ones now working, plan class activities and counsel at youth camp, listen to memory verses and stack chairs, unload equipment, load it back up, and then unload it all over again. Listen, be encouraged. Be encouraged. God sees, God knows, and God cares. You know, we don't often say it enough, but thank you. Thank you for the part that you play in this ministry. And likewise, we need to remember to encourage and thank one another as we see folks ministering here behind the scenes. What glorious truths we learn here from Nehemiah chapter 7.